We have been in a series called Visioneering, and uh, it's uh, ripped from, a, uh, the title's ripped from a book uh, that was written a, a ways back. It's actually an older book, but the concept is that we engineer and create and build our vision, and uh, we have personal vision for our lives, and then we have church vision and corporate vision and vision that we have together, and it's been exciting for the last couple of weeks to talk through this, and so Week one, if you weren't with us, we talked about how do we engineer a vision? How do we build a vision? And that visioneering is, is creating a clear vision with the courage to follow through and how vision both motivates us and directs us. It gives us the energy to go somewhere and a direction of where to go. Because if you got energy and no direction, then you can run in circles. Come on now and not get anywhere. And if you know where you're supposed to go, but you don't get up and do it, come on now. You'll never end up where God's called you to go, and we've been talking about the difference between a good idea and a God idea, and that not every good idea is vision, but all vision starts as a good idea somewhere, and a lot of times it starts with a, a problem that God gives you a picture of what should be, what must be, and then we talked about praying and planning, and prayer and planning are the, the, the critical elements when God begins to give you a vision. And we talked about the importance of prayer and the, the importance of planning. And today, we are diving into this question, this concern, this, uh, this idea of how do we actually do it? We've been praying and we've been planning, but how do we actually do it? And so this morning, our title of the message is just the God of how. How do we actually make things happen that God's called us to do? I don't know about you, but I've been in some situations where God's called me to do something and I can't figure out how to do it. I'm trying. It's not for lack of trying. I shared with some of you, um, we planted a church in Oregon several years ago and uh, we moved down in 2008, which was a disaster time to look for a new job. I quit a very good job, sold a house at the bottom of the market because that's a brilliant move. <laughs> moved into a shack on the hill that was owned by the Park and Rex that was built in 1852. It had snakes and mice in the, underneath it. It was exciting. We had bats. In the, yeah, we had some awesome things. If it, if it exists out in the fields of Oregon, it visited us in our house. But all of those things aside, the biggest concern was I had to find a job in 2008. And I don't know if you've ever been in the job hunt before. <clears throat> there's nothing worse than feeling like there's no hope to get a job when you need a job. Maybe there's some worse things, but in the moment, you don't think there's anything worse. And I can remember putting together my resume thinking, I like me. I think people are going to like me. And I can't get a call back. Come on now. I can't get in the door. I'm applying for every job. I'm applying for the fake jobs on Craigslist that I didn't even know were fake jobs yet. Some of you who have been in the job hunt are laughing because you know there's fake jobs out there. I'm giving my information away to crazy strangers, probably, uh, uh, I don't know, internet bots. I don't know what. I'm just, I'm just trying to get, come on now, out the door and do something, and I don't know how to make it happen. I can't get a call back. I can't get a job. I can't get anything. I finally, I'm taking meetings with people because I'm depressed now. It's been eight months, nine months, ten months. I can't get a job. I'm looking for a job. Pretty soon, you know, you start like this. I don't know if you've ever been in the job hunt before, but you start with expectations up here. This is what I'm worth. This is what I want to do. This is what I'm looking for. Then those expectations change a little bit. This is what I'll settle for. This is what I'll tolerate. This is what then it's, I'm desperate. Why don't you love me? And then it's, I know why you don't love me because I'm the worst, right? I'm down on this part of the cycle. And I'm having conversations about, maybe, you know, am I too big to, to work at Taco Bell? 
Am I too big? Come on now. To work, whatever it takes, right? Am I, because this, we're talking about providing for my family now. And I don't know how God's going to do it. And, and, I, and I had this vision. We were going to plant a church. We were going we to start a new ministry. We were going to go out for God and take on the world. And here I am, month after month after month. God, how is it going to happen? How's it going to happen if I can't get a job? I can't get a starting point. I can't even pay for food right now. How is this going to happen if I can't do it? Waiting for God and waiting on God. Recognizing that all my strength, all my skills, all my resources have gotten me no further, no closer towards the goal. No closer. Now, some of you heard the end of the story. God opened some incredible doors after 10 months, like you can work at a movie theater. Was I too big to work in a movie theater? Nope. I was in a suit slinging popcorn, baby. Why? Because he's the God of how. And when you walk through the first door, he opens the next door. I ended up at a performing arts theater. Do I know anything about performing arts? No. But I can book things in a schedule. I'm a great guy at the door to have a conversation with. I'm out in the parking lot. I like that. And then I ended up at the park and rec district working for them. And God opened a series of doors and gave me favor in the neighborhood that you would never believe. I ended up being the middle school sports coordinator for an entire city. And every parent of a middle schooler had to meet me at registration. You want a better job before you plant a church? Meet every parent of a middle schooler in your entire town. It's a pretty good starting point, right? And here's God just, boom, opening doors. How'd that happen? Why? Because God is a God of how. But it's tough when we don't know what he's doing. It's tough. I think sometimes we, we have these ideas and we think they're vision. I'm supposed to start a business. I'm supposed to write a book. I'm supposed to raise my family a certain way. We're supposed to uh, 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 get our finances in a certain spot. We're supposed, and we feel like, God, you've given me this. There's a, there's a mission at the church. I want to partner with it. I'm supposed to serve. I'm supposed to do these things. And then you try to step forward into it, and it seems like the doors are all being shut. And you're like, God, I, I got this mission, and I got this idea, and I got this vision from you. How do we actually do it? And if you're telling me, God, that I need your help to do it, then how do I get you to help me? Ever have that conversation? God, I, I believe you're there, but how does this thing work? Like if it was a vending machine, I know at $1.25, the Snickers is gonna pop out. So how much is it gonna take until the Snickers pops out? How do I, what do I have to do? What's my plan? Do I make a plan and just start working the plan and hope you jump in? Do I wait and do nothing until you give me a plan? What's the plan? What's the way to get you? Am I, am I talking to a church that feels some of that tension? Your eyes are all up right now, so I think I might be tapping on something. Maybe some of these tensions are some of the reasons that you've struggled with even your faith in God. Maybe you haven't been to church for a long time, and you've been, the, you go to church, and it feels like when you show up, they're selling something, and you try to buy it, but then when you go to buy it, it's like, whew, it's not there. And so it's created some tension for you. Maybe you've been church hopping for a little while and, and, and you have heard some people make some very big statements and claims and you've been like, well, where's the payoff? You've been frustrated. I'm glad you're here. Maybe you've been at church for a long time and you've seen God show up in the past, but you're like, was that it? Was that the time he was going to show up for me? And then the rest of this, I'm on my own. The rest of this, I've got to figure it out. Or, or does he continually show up? I can't figure out. I'm trying to recapture the recipe to get God to move 
and do the thing I want him to do. How in the world does this work? If you ever had any of those questions, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're walking through this with us. Not all of these questions can be answered in a moment, but we can have honest conversations and we can come to the word of God and we can say, this is who God is. We've been walking through the book of Nehemiah. If you want to jump ahead, you can go find Nehemiah. It might take you a little while, depending on how comfortable you are with your Bible or how quickly you can open your app. In the book of Nehemiah, we find out that in the 13 chapters of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah prayed at least 11 times. He tells us he prayed at least 11 times. So we started this conversation by talking about you're asking for something from God, but you're not actually asking God. And our ability and desire and need to pray has to be paramount. Nehemiah gives us some keys. And I love this story about Nehemiah because Nehemiah is an admin. He's a doer. He's a worker bee. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's not an apostle. But he gets things done. And I don't know about you, but I like getting things done. And he has a vision. And the tension that we run into is that many visions die in the time between what and the time between how. Many visions die in the time between what and the time between how. Because you got a vision, but you don't know how. And some of the greatest visions you've had for your life, you had a vision, you had a what, but there was a gap between what and how. I'm supposed to write this book. I'm supposed to paint this picture. I'm supposed to craft this song. I'm talking only to the artist. I'm supposed to take a job. I'm supposed to raise my family a certain way. I'm supposed to be home and present at a certain time. I'm supposed to, like, there's a dream in there. I'm supposed to finish some education. I'm supposed to go to the next level. I'm supposed to do, and you know there's a what, but you don't have the how yet. And a lot of visions die in the time between what, come on now, and how. And you know that. You've experienced that. So here's the key to every vision that comes from God. A divine vision necessitates a divine intervention. If you got a vision that comes from God, it's probably going to require God's help to do it. And if you believe that you have a vision that comes from God and you don't need God's help to do it, it may not be a divine vision. Part of the reason that you're stuck is because you're trying to figure out how to do it on your own. When we talked about praying and planning, we talked about how a lot of times opportunities are miracles. Opportunities are miracles. And we don't always see opportunities as miracles. We like miracles to be miracles. We want the Red Sea to part, and then we just walk on through. Right? But Nehemiah didn't say, hey, part the Red Sea. He said, God, give me an opportunity to have a conversation with someone. Sometimes your miracle is your opportunity. And if you don't see those things as divine, then we may miss in the moment what a miracle is. But sometimes our miracles are miracles. Remember Peter walking on the water? What a picture of vision, seeing Jesus and then moving out towards Jesus. Let me read this to you because it might not be fresh in your head. Peter walking on water, Matthew 14, 25. And we'll get to Nehemiah in a minute. He says, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now they're on a boat. I don't know how familiar you are with your Bibles. If you're not really familiar with your Bibles, you should know something. This wasn't ordinary stuff, even for Jesus. Most of the time, he walked on land like you and I, right? So this wasn't ordinary stuff. Some of you, if you haven't been in your Bible too much, you may, you may go, oh, walking on water. That was just like a thing. I've heard Jesus walked on water. That was like a thing he just kind of did on the regular, right? He'd just be showing off. They'd be in town, and there'd be like a pond, and he'd be like, check me out. He's walking. No, that wasn't like a thing in the scriptures at all. 
So this is unusual behavior. Something supernatural out of the ordinary has happened here, okay? They're out on the lake. There was a big thing. They fed a bunch of people. They prayed. It was a big meeting. They're trying to get to the other side of the lake. The crowds are pushing in. It's nighttime. The disciples get in a boat. Jesus goes off and prays. They don't know where he is. They're like, we'll just go to the other side. He'll catch up. He's catching up. He's walking out on the water towards them. This is unusual. Verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking out on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. I love that Matthew's just like gets, captures it, you know. It's a ghost. This is a reasonable, reasonable response. If you were out fishing before dawn, out on a boat, it's dark out, and you look out, and here comes somebody, right? I don't know if he's rocking big flowy robes, but that's how I picture it, right? We all have kind of blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus with a big flowy beard. That's not what he looked like, trust me. But in that picture, it's hilarious to think of him walking out just like this. He's walking out on the water, and they're like, it's a ghost. Like they didn't do like, um, we'll call it harvest festival Halloween things, right? But this is a pretty good Halloween story. (laughs) It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. This is a normal response. Fear makes sense. When God does something supernatural, fear is always a component for us today we're gonna have to deal with right because it's outside of our realm of what we expect and what we how we know the world works verse 27 it says but jesus immediately said to them take courage it is i don't be afraid guys you should look for this pattern in the bible look for it in your life jesus is doing something that's outside of the ordinary outside of what you expect and your response is fear and his response is what have courage It's me, don't be afraid. This is a pattern you should be experiencing in your life as you're stepping out into faith and as you're stepping out into vision. There's gonna be times when you are naturally afraid because it doesn't look like you think it should look all the time. And your response is gonna be, I'm afraid. And Jesus' response is always, have courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Verse 28. Lord, if it's you, I love Peter. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, tell me to come to you and walk on the water. And everyone sees a ghost, but Peter sees an opportunity. Everyone sees a ghost and says, this is out of the ordinary. And Peter says, out of the ordinary, I want in on this. I want to, he's an early adapter. This is out of the ordinary. We've been doing this, we've been doing the boat for water thing for all of history. There's one way that this works. You either sink or you get in a boat. And Jesus is saying, that's not the only way this can work. Something supernatural can happen. And Peter's like, okay, I'm in. Do you have early adapters in your life who see the supernatural and want to step out in faith? Are you an early adapter when you see God doing things? Does it inspire, Eve, despite fear, does it inspire something in you to step out? If you're in a spot of vision and God's doing something supernatural, is it inspiring you to say, okay, I want to go over there? Or are you like, whoa, let's see where this thing goes. I'm just wondering. You know, we defeat fear by getting out of the boat. We don't defeat fear. We don't just say, God, make me less afraid. We have to step then outside of that and outside of the boat. That's how we defeat fear. Can I, I'm going to make a potentially snarky comment here. Let me process. I love you guys, and so I'm real with you guys, but... 
there's a thing that exists that bothers me in my core. And it's the idea of, it's, it's weird because it's kind of a hot button thing, but it's the idea of we have to create safe spaces where people don't have to be afraid of dealing with the world, right? And it's a horrible, horrible way to help people break fear, right? You don't break fear by retreating. You break fear by stepping out of the boat and moving incrementally towards the thing with God's help. Like it's, that's how you break fear, right? Fear isn't broken by retreating. And staying in the boat will never break your fear. You got to get out of the boat to break fear. And God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. If you think about counseling and, and uh, you know, this isn't a self-help thing, but it's just a practical thing. When a counselor's dealing with someone who has fear issues, they don't say, stay in your house and never go experience that thing. What they say is, so your fear is public speaking. Okay, here's what I'd like you to do. I want you this week to walk up to one person and just introduce yourself. Just break it a little bit. And then come back and tell me how that went, right? Why? Because we break fear by getting out of the boat. We break fear by taking steps. If there's fear surrounding the vision God's given you, then let me just ask you, have you taken any steps outside of the boat? Ooh, that was really good. Someone needed to write that down. I'm just telling you, that was a free extra thing. I'm not even to Nehemiah yet, but some of you just need to take a, a step and start breaking the fear a little bit. Maybe the fear is a financial fear. Maybe you need to give something away just to prove that you, that financial thing doesn't have a hold on your life. And you have to find a way to go be generous in a way that, like maybe the fear is you won't have enough and God's just saying, you know what? You need to break that. Why don't you look for an opportunity to go be generous in a way that's outside. If the fear is someone's gonna take advantage of you, go serve somebody. Pick somebody and, and just go serve them. And you know what? You might get taken advantage of, but we're gonna break that fear that it has a hold of your life. If that fear is you have to forgive somebody, go start somewhere lower on the food chain than the big fear and go find someone else, right? That you need to go for, and take us, come on now, church. Peter got out of the boat. He was, everyone was afraid and he's like, all right, this is an opportunity for me to take a step. Man, I'm gonna get to Nehemiah, it's gonna be good. All right. <laughs> Verse 29. Come on then, Jesus said, and Peter got out of the boat. And he walked on the water, verse 29. This is crazy. And he came towards Jesus. This is probably one of the most inspiring pieces of scripture. It's why it's extra today, because I just felt this all week long. Knowing that you can get out of the boat changed my whole life and trajectory of my faith with Jesus. That it's possible to take a step on the water, even though it's scary, changed everything for me. You need to hear some simple truth. God, if it's you, tell me to come. And he came towards Jesus. If it's Jesus, you can get out on the water. Verse 30. There's a whole other sermon there, but I'm going to stop. Verse 30. When he saw the wind, oh, here it is. But when, but when, but when he saw the wind, but when he saw Jesus, he moved towards Jesus. He saw the miracle. He took a step of faith to break his fear. But guess what was coming? The wind. Storms are always coming. Every time you take a step towards your vision, the wind is going to come. Let me just write that down. Put it on. Put it in stone. It rains on the just and the unjust. The scripture says it's going to happen. God said it's going to happen. Your pastor's telling you it's going to happen. Why are we so surprised when we face some struggle when we're trying to move towards our vision? 
and we're trying to move towards Jesus. Well, I thought I'd be the one person that didn't have to face any struggles. Okay, I know that sounds really snarky, but that's how you sound. You just haven't heard anyone parrot it back to you. It's true. But when he saw the wind, what happened? He was afraid. I should say again. He was afraid because they started afraid. Then he got courage. And then the difficulty came and he began to sink and he cried out to the Lord. Lord, save me. The God of how is what we're talking about today and that idea that the wind is going to blow no matter what. But Peter's strength came when he came, stayed focused. His eyes on Jesus, walking on water. His eyes on the wind, sinking. Are you sinking? What are you looking at? Where's your vision? Verse 31. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith. He said, why did you doubt? I imagine he's just bro-hugging him. It's like, dude, you had this. You had this. And when they climbed back in the boat, oh, this is so good. I read this a hundred times, thousand times maybe, my favorite passages. Just jumped off the page with me this week. And when they climbed back in the boat, the wind died down. Do you realize out on the water with Jesus, he sinks because the wind's blowing? Jesus grabs him. The wind doesn't stop. He's still on the water in the wind, but he's got Jesus and his hands, and he's focused on Jesus. And I was just absolutely mind-blown, heart-blown, just completely changed my perspective on the story. The wind didn't stop just because he got to where Jesus was. The storm that you're walking through towards your vision might still be hitting, but you're with Jesus, and you're okay. And if you're expecting the storm to stop just because you put your eyes back on Jesus, that doesn't mean the storm's gonna stop. And some of you have been hung up right there waiting for the difficult season to be done. And Jesus is like, you're staying in the difficult season, but we're out here on the water and you're with me and you're okay. The fear stopped because he was with Jesus, but the storm didn't stop. The struggle didn't stop. Some of you have been like, I've been in the middle of where I think God wants me to be, but it hasn't got any easier, Pastor Mike. The winds are still coming. Yep, they still came. All the way until he was back in the boat. They moved on to the next thing. I'm just saying. You can stay out on the water. You can stay in the miracle. You can stay in the vision in the midst of the storm. And the storm does not have to derail you. The thing that was scary doesn't have to put fear into your life just because it didn't go away. Your focus has to change. And the direction of your vision has to change. Was that helpful? Are you with me, church? All right. You write that on your heart. Put it where you need to hear it because you might need to have heard that. (laughs) I've been sick, so my grammar is a little more Bay Area than it normally is. I apologize. My words are just fumbling themselves together. Whoo, help me, church. I need an amen. All right, whoo. Thank you. Next thing. A divine vision is limited only by God's potential and resources. A divine vision is limited only by God's potential and resources. Some of you are frustrated because you felt like you had a vision from the Lord, but everything seems limited because you don't have the potential. You don't have the pieces. You don't have the resources. I just want to put out there for you, if the vision is coming from the Lord, then it's his resources and his potential that caps the vision. And let me tell you something about my God. His potential, woo, off the charts. His resources, woo, off the charts. And if you have a vision and it's from the Lord and you've been frustrated because you're like, I don't see the potential. I don't know how we're going to get there. I don't see the resources. I don't know how we're going to get there. But the only thing that can happen is that God shows up 
If you have vision and it's from the Lord, that's where your dependency needs to be. He's going to provide the resources if it's from him. Seems fair. Seems like a fair shot, right? Some of you don't agree with me, so I'll keep preaching. We've been in this series, and our hero is a guy named Nehemiah. And if you have just dropped in, um, I won't recap all of Nehemiah's history for you because I've been doing that for the last couple of weeks, and I don't have time now because I preached about Peter for some reason. But we're in Nehemiah chapter 2. <clears throat> and Nehemiah is a stud. He's the cupbearer to the king. He has a great job. Um, it has amazing, amazing benefits and one uh, horrible, horrible downside. He tastes all the food and beverages that are provided to the king to make sure that those things aren't poisonous. It means he eats like a king. He parties like a king. He drinks like a king. He's got kingly presence around him all the time. It's the best benefit package you could possibly have unless someone poisons the king. And then you die first. It's an interesting job. But that's his job. His people are in captivity. Um, they have been uh, captured. Persia is ruling the known world right now. Um, his current king, the father of this king, his Artaxerxes, his, his king's, his boss's dad, was King Xerxes, that like the Persian that <sighs> conquered everybody, you know, the movie 300, and they're just like, oh, they're fight that's who they were fighting, right? And so he's, he's living with those crazy people. And his people had been given permission to go back to their land. He lives about 800 miles away from his homeland. His people have been given permission to go back to their land to go and begin to rebuild it because Persia owns everything. So if you own here and you own Seattle and someone who's here is like, hey, can we go live in Seattle? You're like, yeah, I still own you in Seattle. So go live. I don't care where you go live as long as you know I own you. So his group of people had wanted to go back to Jerusalem, their holy city where they're from. And, and Artaxerxes is like, yeah, I don't care. Go where you want to go. And so a group of them went, but not Nehemiah, because Nehemiah has an awesome job. He parties like a king. He lives like a king. He has influence like a king. And he has a, a tremendously important position. And he is not really a preacher or a pastor. He's certainly not an apostle. Those aren't his skill sets. He has a tremendous administrative skill set. He's got great leadership qualities. And some of you have different skills than what you think the kingdom of God might need. Maybe your skill set is a little bit different than what everyone else's skill set is. And you wonder, how do I fit? And here's Nehemiah stepping up for the type A admin folks. Come on now, church. Your gift, your skill set matters. God's looking for some competent admins. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In chapter 1, we saw him get word from his brother that the walls were in ruin in his city. And this pierces Nehemiah, and he drops, and he weeps, and he prays, and he fasts. And it somehow puts a burden in his heart, because even though he's miles away, he loves the city of God, and he loves the people of God, and he recognizes that they're undefended, that with no walls protecting the city, the people can't gather in community anymore. They have to scatter and live in tents and hide, because raiders will come in and pillage and plummet them and take them over, and they're weakened, and they don't have what they need to survive, and so they don't... So Nehemiah recognizes, I'm living in luxury. I'm partying like a king. I have all of this, but my people and the people that God loves are disconnected, scattered, and they can't gather together and do what God's called them to do because the wall's broken down and it breaks his heart and he begins to weep and to pray and to fast and God begins to spark in him a dream and a vision 
of what could be. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the month of Nisan, we know this is about, um, gosh, what is this, about six uh, months later, four months later. He's been praying and fasting for four months later. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him. So Nehemiah is up. Here comes wine to the king. Guess what his job is? He says, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Listen to this. I had not been sad in his presence before. That's an interesting line. For four months, he's been praying and fasting. He probably looks a little different than he did four months ago. He's been dreaming and asking God for opportunities. And he shows up. Not only does he show up, he shows up to drink the wine. This should be a good moment. He's bringing wine to the king. He's tasted it. He had to taste enough that if it's poisonous, something bad might happen. So in theory, he should be, I don't drink wine, but it should lead to a relatively good mood. It seems insincere and awkward. The other thing that's important to note is that part of his job is being in the presence of the king and being sat in the presence of the king in this culture is, is intolerable. You're in the presence of the king. They worship the king like a god. You get to be in the presence of the king. You should be happy. You're being blessed. This is good news for you. Think about Esther um, uh, just a little bit before with this guy's dad. And what a big deal it was to get into the presence of the king. You didn't even go uninvited. You had to be invited or you could just die. The presence of the king was an important moment. And to be sad in the presence of the king is actually a tremendous risk. It's not just like, hey, you guys, here you go, moping, right? It's not just wallowing. Some of us, when vision doesn't seem to be going our way, we just mope. And we're like, I don't know why anyone doesn't want to do my vision. (laughs) Right? That's not what's happening here. That's not, I'm not giving you the strategy of God's called me to do something. Nobody wants to help me. That's not what's happening. He's been praying. He's been fasting. His heart is broken. And he goes into the presence of the king and he can't put on a face that's not sincere. He can't even fake it because he's so brokenhearted for what God's people are going through. When's the last time you were so brokenhearted for someone you couldn't just fake your way that everything was okay? That's where Nehemiah's heart is in this moment. He's been going for four months, which doesn't seem like a ton of time, but try fasting for four months. He's been waiting for God's timing and praying for an opportunity, and the door hasn't seemed to open. Now, here's where I can relate to Nehemiah, because four months in the history of the world doesn't seem like that much time. But you and I hate waiting. We just do. Our culture tells us, I mean, come on now. I pre-order my coffee. I want it on the counter when I walk in the door. I don't even want to have to ask you to make it anymore. I want to ask you to make it in my house and I want to be there when I show up, (laughs) right? I'm not waiting for anything. I was so, it's too revealing. I was irritated because things weren't right, right? And I was like, I pre-ordered this, should be right. (laughs) We don't like waiting. We just don't. The time when God gives us a vision or when we have a good idea and it doesn't seem to work out in that amount of time, we stink at waiting. And this question of God's how and his timing, we hate to wait but we know something about God's timing, don't we? It's perfect down to the day. It's perfect. (laughs) I want to make a joke. We have three women that I'm aware of that are waiting to have a baby right now. And they're just like, come on, God. 
the timing. It's like, oh, I don't want to wait. They've all expressed the same thing. They're ready. I'm going to have some babies. That's one way to grow the church. You want to grow the church? I'm just saying. <laughs> Sorry. Side. Sick brain. Come back. Chapter 2, verse 2. He's sad in the presence of the king. He's never done that before. It's life-threatening to do that, but God's timing is taking a little bit of time, and he's been fasting and praying, and he hasn't had the opportunity yet. And it says, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. The king's discerning. He's like, something's wrong in your heart, Nehemiah. Now listen to this. I was very much afraid. Why is Nehemiah very much afraid right here? Because it is illegal to be sad in the presence of the king. And he's been praying for opportunity because he believed opportunity is a miracle. God, open a door. Give me a chance to have a conversation. Give me what, whatever the step is. I'm willing to get out of the boat. I'm gonna conquer fear by taking a step towards conquering that fear, whatever that looks like. And here is the king. And the king is like, bro, your countenance is down. What's going on in your heart? It's opportunity and it's risk. And you know what his response is? The same as your and my response would be, he's afraid. Oh no, is this actually gonna be the opportunity that I've been praying for? I mean, <laughs> being depressed in this guy's presence, you could just die. But whenever God asks you to do something that you normally don't wanna do, Fear is the normal response. He doesn't want to ask the king for stuff. That's a potential death sentence. He doesn't want to believe that God's going to do all those things. He just knows he needs to. So what are some of the things God's asking you to do that you don't want to do right now? Just based on fear. What are some things? Think about it. You have a vision, you have a dream. What are some things you think God's asking you to do, but you don't want to do right now? Fear is the natural response. Maybe God's been opening a door for you to talk to someone, share with a neighbor, a friend, a coworker about Jesus. Maybe they keep coming and saying, my life's a mess. I'm having this problem. You're like, oh man, that stinks. Thanks. And you're like, oh, that was a moment. I could have said something, Charlie. I was there. It was, I could have said, can I pray for you? I could have like just thrown the littlest step, but I was like, uh-uh, I got to see you again tomorrow and I can't have this get weird. Maybe there's a door that's been opened there. Maybe there's a door that's been opened to forgive someone. Come on, the holidays are coming. We got to talk about this every year. All those circle of people that we're going to see that we haven't seen for a while. All those little pieces of baggage and things and God's opening a door and you're like, oh, that's scary to think about. I don't want to do it. What are the things God's been asking you to do that you don't want to do right now? Maybe love someone that's been a little unlovable. They've been unlovable and you've been like, yep, I got every right to not love them. Look at this list of what they've done. And God's like, you want to see your list? And you're like, nah, bro. <laughs> nah, bro. No thanks for that, right? But I got a list of what they've done. And God's saying, okay. The thing you're afraid of right now is that if you're going to love them, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to not work out for you. Why don't you, why don't you just trust me? And you, you lead with love. Maybe it serves someone. Maybe it's risk something go somewhere. I don't know. What do we do when God's calling us to do something that we know we don't want to do and fear gets in there? I wonder how many of our visions and our dreams die right here. We've been praying. We've been fasting. We're like, ah, oh, God, just open the door. And then here comes the door and it's scary. What's going on with you? And it's like, oh, I don't want to say. I don't want to say now. Nothing. I'm fine. Thanks. 
And you go and pray and fast again. You're like, oh, give me another opportunity that's easier than that one. That one was hard. That's where Nehemiah is at. He was afraid, it says. He was very much afraid. Verse 3, but he was afraid, but I said to the king, and then he's pretty awesome. May the king live forever. (laughs) It's a great way to ask someone for something. Let me lead with, you're awesome. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? He's so tactful here. He doesn't say like, uh, uh, you know, Jerusalem, my city or whatever. He just says, man, my family is suffering. My ancestors' family is suffering. The place where they're buried is just, he personalizes and he begins to cast the vision. And the king said to me, what is it you want? And then listen, verse four. The king said to me, what is it you want? And said, then I prayed to the God of heaven. When's the last time you were in a big conversation in the middle of it, you just prayed? He said, God, strengthen me. Give me words. Give me courage in the moment. Give me, you know, we're fighting right now. And I'm about to say the dumb thing. I'm going to say it. Here comes the dumb thing. God, give me strength. Give me courage. Give me wisdom. Give me insight. It's a big moment. It's a big ask. I'm about to walk up in front and ask for the thing. God, give me the thing you need. So here comes Nehemiah. And he prays. Praying in the middle of it. You want to know how God helps work things out? You better invite him in the middle of it. When's the last time you invited him? You were in the middle of it and you are like, all right, God, you're in. I'm tagging you in. Verse five, <clears throat> I gotta move faster. It says, then I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. And I love this. He goes, listen, if I found favor in your sight. You know what this means? This means that he's referring to his past conduct and character to ask him for favor going forward. Some of you have vision and you have a dream. And I just want to ask this question. Are you living in such a way now that if someone was to look back and go, okay, hey, you know what? Is there any chance, God, that you would want to open this door? Is there any chance that this door would go open? And he goes, if I've found favor, if I've demonstrated that though I, I haven't had everything I always wanted, I've been in a servant position, but I've served well. And I've honored and given honor and respect. I've done what Jesus says, do everything as if it's for the Lord. I've been doing everything I could. It's just as if it's for God. If I've found favor with you, then allow me to go back. There was a tension that I had when I wrote this. And because of time, I'm nervous to get us into the tension. But here's the tension. I wonder how often... There's favor out there towards the vision that God wants for me, but I'm the hiccup because I don't have the favor I need because I haven't come on now been living in such a way as to generate that favor. I haven't been kind and living like Jesus. Some stuff has been coming out of me. And so some of the fear steps I have to do is go make some things right, go apologize. I had to have a come to Jesus moment for me, just praying and saying, God, is there favor towards the vision you've given me or is it missing because of some things in me? Because I wanna be honest and I wanna be transparent. 
And I don't know the answer to all those things. So Holy Spirit, if there's some things, if there's some places I got to go make some things right, if there's some things I got to change, if there's some stuff in me you want to work on to build the favor up so that I can get to the place where I can say, okay, if it pleases the king, if I've been doing the thing that you want to do, come on now, church, when's the last time we had an honest conversation? We've been wanting to move towards some things in vision, but we haven't wanted to look in the mirror and see if we're the right person anymore that can go into that place with God and invited him to kind of work on some stuff in us. I'll just leave that there for you to think through. I had to come to me in it, to Jesus conversation with Jesus, <laughs> right? Sometimes we have that come to Jesus conversation with somebody, like me and Charlie are having a fight, we have to have a come to, I had to have a come to Jesus conversation with Jesus, like, all right, Jesus, would you search my heart and my little attitudes and all my stuff and make sure that I'm actually the guy you can move through to do this thing, that I'm not the stumbling block? man, I got to move faster. Then the king with the queen sitting behind him, beside him, which I love, right? He asks for favor in front of the wife and it's like, hey, be magnanimous. Maybe she'll be impressed. I don't know. All right. <laughs> how long will your journey take? Oh, I love this. The king asked him, he goes, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? So the king loves him because of how, how he's been responding. And the king asks him a practical question. How long is this vision going to take? How long is this dream going to take? He, he's valuable. When are you coming back? Are you coming back after this is over? And this is what I love. Nehemiah said, so I set a time. He's been praying, but he's been planning. He's been planning the whole time. He knows. You know how long it's going to take him to do this? It's like 12 to 16 years. He's going to be gone. But he sets a time limit. He says, this is what it's going to take for this to happen. He had a plan. He prayed and he planned. Verse seven and eight, and I'll wrap it up here. He says, so if it pleases the king, can I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they'll provide me safe contact until I arrive in Judah? He knows he's gonna need help. <clears throat> Verse eight, and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, for the walls of the residence while I occupy. And because of the gracious hand of my God, which was on me, the king granted my request. Listen, God's present in the planning. The Holy Spirit's present in the planning. I uh, believe that God is a God of order and he plans. So we plan and then we let God wreck the plan. Like I planned on going longer today, but I didn't plan on all the stuff that the Holy Spirit was doing in, in worship. And so we make a plan and then we allow the presence of God to wreck the plan. That's how we do things, right? And so if we think we're just gonna not plan and then the Holy Spirit will just show up, that's a bad plan. You should plan, and then you should allow the Holy Spirit to move within the plan. But God is present in the planning. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be careful how I say this. I have a friend, there's a way. And, uh, and he does what I do in some degree. <clears throat> and he doesn't like to plan, like on his messages and stuff. He's just like, ah, I'm just gonna walk up there and the Holy Spirit's gonna give me something. And I'm just like, that's a bad plan. That is, that's a bad plan. I mean, I just, it just is, right? I'm like, what you should do is you should study and then plan, and then the Holy Spirit can wreck your plans or change your plans and alter your plans, because why? The Holy Spirit's present when we plan. And so here's Nehemiah, and he's been praying and fasting for months. And so this is this message, this is the God of how, right? And, and, and in the midst of all the how, he doesn't know how the favor is gonna happen. He doesn't know how it's gonna happen. He just knows what he needs God to do in order to take the next step. He knows he's gonna need materials. He's gonna need letters. He's gonna need a timeline. He's gonna need a building plan. He's gonna need to put all the pieces in place. And sometimes we get frustrated. It's like, it's like, no, God will just take care of it. No, 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 no. You make the plan 
and you pray and you believe that the Holy Spirit, that God will be present while you're planning. And then you pray for the miracle to break loose and give opportunity so that you can execute the plan. And if God wants to change the plan, great. But in the meantime, you keep planning and you keep praying and you keep believing that the miracle's coming in the form of an opportunity you never imagined. I'm gonna give you just a simple, like, little miracle. How, how many of you have appreciated that you can see the road now from as you're driving in and out right here because those trees are down, right? So for months, I've been like, yeah, we need to take those trees down. And I've been trying to make plans. I don't know if Sean Lombardini's in here. Somewhere. Yeah, we've been, we've been plotting and planning because of the nature of this land right here, whether it's wetlands or not, I don't, I don't even know what we can do with it, right? And I'm just praying. I'm like, God, I just, I want to be able to see the road. It's just, it's, I can't handle it. It doesn't look safe. It doesn't look good. People don't know the church is here. Like, ah, I just, ah, this is like a little thing, right? But I can't do anything because, you know, the land is like, is it wetlands? What is it? We don't know what we're doing, right? And then I just show up on a day when I'm not supposed to be here because I got to grab something. And, and there's a team of guys with chainsaws just walking across the property. So I went and met them because that's unusual, <laughs> right? I thought that's probably a thing I should, I, I'm probably the guy that has to go talk to guys with chainsaws when they're walking around the property. And they're Bonneville Power and they're out just cutting under the power lines. And I said, I said, you know what? I just have this dilemma, this piece of land right here that all this growth is here and we can't see anything. And is it close enough to the power lines that it's a point of concern for you? And they're like, we don't know, you should call our boss. And I was like, cool, I'll call your boss. And so I call the boss, opportunity. And he shows up. And so I make a meeting with him and I go out there and I'm like, I'm just going to go be kind to this guy and ask for a favor. And I was just honest with him. I was like, listen, I don't know if this is your problem or my problem, but if it could be your problem, that would be awesome. Because that's my problem, I don't know how to fix it. Right? And, and he starts having this conversation with me and we get to talking and we're talking about the church and we're just talking about life and we're talking about how they have to, you know, come on other people's property all the time and cut things and usually it's a fight. And, and, uh, and, and I said, well, well, what do you think? Can you solve this problem? And he goes, well... If there's room in the budget, I'll help you solve the problem. And it'll probably come out sometime like in January after we finish this project because they're close enough that we should take them. But, uh, but it's a matter of can we do it right now? And I said, okay, talking about the trees and stuff, right? Two weeks later, he's supposed to come in January. They just show up. This is awesome, right? They're out there and they have a crew and the crew isn't the guy. So the crew comes out and the branches are hanging over the, the uh, other power lines. And they're like, oh, we can't actually take them because uh, the, the, you don't have the right equipment to take them down because these branches are over here. And so, so we can't actually do it. We came out, but we can't actually do it. And I was like, remember the favor that I asked for because we just want to be able to see can you just make it so we can see here? And he's like, yeah, my crew's out here. No big deal. And they worked a whole day of just giving us clear lines of sight. And I was like, well, God, thanks for at least that favor, even though they couldn't take the trees. No big deal. The next day they showed up and took the trees. I'm just saying, you know, listen, I know that's like a small miracle, right? But what kind of miracles? I'm praying. God, I look out this window every day. I'm like, people don't know we're here. I can't see. It's not safe. You know, the preschool's coming in and out, and I don't like the look. Now, is it pretty yet? It's not pretty yet. But, but that was the step that I couldn't control. And so here's God just giving favor. Sometimes your plans and your vision, your, your purpose is just going to be God's timing because he's the God of the resource. And you just trust him. And then when the opportunity comes, you're the right person to ask for favor. And you ask for favor, come on now, and then God does the rest. Would you stand with me? I got so much more that I was going to break down for you. <clears throat> I want to talk about the church's plan moving forward. It's all good stuff. I'll use it in another message. I know trees don't seem like a big miracle sometimes, but come on now. How often do we normalize the supernatural? 
That's supernatural favor, guys. That's amazing. I probably need to get a work party of some guys that want to go chop some trees into uh, firewood. Maybe we'll just give some firewood to families in the church that need it. We'll give it to the neighborhood, and we'll just turn it into a, a blessing that just keeps on blessing. So if you're a guy that is into that kind of stuff, let's pick a Saturday, get a log splitter, I guess, or something. I don't know what it takes. I'm a city boy. Help me. <clears throat> favor. I'm asking for some favor. When I say guys, I mean people. Come on, ladies. I know you can swing, swing an axe. Some of you are looking at your guy like, seriously, I'm the one that's going to be cutting that wood. That's awesome. No judgment here. Just saying. <laughs> we'll take all the help we can get. I was praying for God's favor when it comes to the mission and vision of our church. And this series is called Visioneering. And we've been talking about this incredible tension, I think, that God's been revealing that if we could do one thing right here in this place, we could help people in our community, in our neighborhood, move from isolation to community. That that's the mission. It's, not, it's the vision, I should say. The mission statement. Thank you, Jesus. The mission statement is moving to, we want to inspire people to follow Jesus, discover new life in him, and then change our world. The name of the church is changing. It's coming soon. My wife and I are arguing about the timing. Me and everybody is arguing about the timing, basically. And we're just in this God of how. How's it going to happen? It's like, all right, God, we're going to need some favor. We're going to need some favor to make it happen. I'm just going to tell you. We're going to need some favor. we got to do all kinds of crazy things. we got to get signage, and we got to decide what we're doing in this room. I mean, there's so many, all these moving pieces. Come on, family. Why? Because we just believe God's doing a new thing in this moment, in this place, and we want to give our best. It's going to take buy-in, and it's going to take your help and support, and you're part of this. And why? Because we're going to start celebrating every single time we meet a family, a person who's alone and isolated, and the enemy's convinced that that's normal, and we're going to pull them out of that into relationship because God designed us to be together with one another, and that's what we do at our church. I'm excited. We're going to discover that the church is the ecclesia of God. That's the Greek word for for, for church, when we you know when Jesus says, oh God, I'm getting preachy, I got, I got a minute and a half. <clears throat> when, when Jesus tells Peter, you're the rock, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Do you know that church wasn't a word yet? There is no word. Church is a German word. It came from like Germanic tribes, like post-Rome after Germany like overtook those tribes. Like there, there wasn't churches, right? There, when, when Jesus says that, he says, my ecclesia. And ecclesia is a big, important word that means the called out ones. And what the ecclesia was, was a herald, because you got to remember, they didn't have the internet, right? They didn't have phones. So a herald, which is a loud person, so like me, would run through town. He'd be like, hey, get out of your houses, and get together and gather. Something important is going to happen. That's an ecclesia. The people would come out of their houses, and they would get together, and then they would get marching orders of what was happening. We're going to war. There's an enemy coming. We got to fight. We got to make a big decision. There's a family in need. We're coming around them. An ecclesia was when someone said, get out of your homes and get together with one another and get on mission. And Jesus says, Peter... That is what I'm building here on earth. A group of people who get out of their homes, come on now, and get together to get on mission. So when we change the name of the church to discover church, that's what we want people to discover. Church isn't, come on now, a building. It's a group of people who get out together and get on mission moving towards Jesus. 
And what would it look like here if we started doing that? If we started individually, corporately in our neighborhood saying, you know what? I know you think church is this Sunday building thing. That's totally not the story. Let me invite you into the real story. Who God is and what he wants to do in your life. And you can't do it at home on the internet by yourself. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. We got to get together. Jesus, thanks that in the midst of my weakness and sickness, hopefully you make some sense. This is where we trust the Holy Spirit and you challenge our hearts and you pull us to the place where we're going, not because uh, 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 of my will, but because of your heart for us and for this church and this moment in this town and this place that you want to break through the isolation and the loneliness that we're feeling. The people that, that, that have, have bought into the lie that we don't need one another to make it. We can order our groceries online, pull up to the store, and we don't even have to talk to somebody, and they'll just give them in our car. Woo! Convenience over everything? I don't think so. Not when it comes to the family of God. You designed us for a relationship. We don't want to order our church that way. Woo! We have to get together, and it's messy, and it's people, and we need each other, and you gave us each other, and that's our vision, to start doing that in a way that makes a difference. And we're going to celebrate it and we're going to rejoice as we inspire people to follow you because we call them out of their houses and say, let's go do this thing that God's called us to do. And I pray for individual visions that have been just birthing as we've been talking about this. And we don't know how. And we're stuck in the time between the what and the how. And it's time to pray and to ask for favor and to make a plan. And we better, when the door opens, be able to say, it's going to take this long. I'm going to need this many trees. I'm going to need a letter to over here. And anything else you got for us, Lord, stir it up in us, I pray. Why? Because we want to make a difference while we're here and do something for the kingdom that matters. And we love you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.